Well, good morning. Great to be together today as a church. Real quick, before we dive into Deuteronomy's chapters 29 and 30, as we're moving towards the end of the book, I wanted to give one last personal pastoral encouragement to engage with the week of prayer and fasting. If that's something like you've never even thought about, that sounds weird, that sounds legalistic, like you're earning uh, extra credits with God, uh, let me assure you, maybe even as you're going through the Bible read-through this year, just keep account of how many times you see God's people pray and fast. In Matthew 6, right after the Lord's prayer, Jesus tells his followers, and by implication, us, he says, when you fast, not if, but when. So I just really want to encourage you, implore you to engage with the week of prayer and fasting, even like in really simple, small ways. Again, check out the website, check out the guide, but to know most of the church is doing this together is beautiful. And I'm excited to see and hear what God does in us and in your own walk with the Lord. Like, I'd really encourage you to lean in and take advantage of this. Don't, don't push it away or kick the can down the road and be like, yeah, next year. Do it this year. And I'd love to hear um, how that experience is for you. So, all right, switching gears. Deuteronomy chapter 29 and 30. Please have a Bible open in front of you, whether that be a page or screen. We want to be a people of the book here at GBC. We're going to be looking at God's word as we go through these chapters together. So chapters 29 and 30, this is the last of Moses's three sermons, so to speak, in the book of Deuteronomy. Next week, Todd will close the book for us. And we're going to see it's an amazing end scene for how the book ends. But this is the last sermon that Moses will ever preach in his life. And we get to look at it together today. And again, just to have the setting, the context in our minds, so we can feel the weight and the beauty and the glory of the text. Remember, Moses is preaching to God's people on the eastern banks of the Jordan River, right? just before they're ready to finally enter the promised land. This is like his last second talk before his team runs out of the locker room onto the field for a big game. We get to hear Moses's last words together today. And I love how one commentator put it of what we're gonna see today. Just listen to this. This commentator writes, these chapters bring us to the climax of Moses' preaching and the theological heart of the book. Understanding this part of the book unlocks Moses' sweeping biblical theological perspective and lays the foundation for the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Everything we've been seeing so far in Deuteronomy in chapters 1 through 28 has been building up to this last sermon of Moses. And I wonder, as we're kind of like reflecting on our time together in the book, have you felt the tension that's been building up to chapters 29 and 30? Are the people of Israel going to keep the covenant promise they made with God and thereby experience all the blessings of the covenant that God promised would happen? Or are they going to break the covenant and then have all of those fearsome, brutal curses fall on them? The curses that Todd so helpfully exposited for us last week in chapter 28. 
And then there's also a tension. I'm sure many of you have like felt it in Deuteronomy. Attention about who God is, right? Is God this gracious, loving, land flowing with milk and honey, like I'm good for you, God? Or is he the fearsome God of holiness, holiness and justice and wrath that has to punish evil and that will put these curses as a just punishment onto his people? Which one is he? And the aim of chapters 29 and 30, it's going to help us see what the whole book of Deuteronomy is all about. We're being drawn into the very center, the nuclear core of the book. And it's going to point us, Moses' sermon under the inspiration of God is going to point us to the resolution of the tension we've been feeling. So we have a big chunk to go through today. I get it chapters 29 and 30. The real weight of the text today is chapter 30. So I'm going to read for us aloud all of chapter 30. Could you have a Bible in front of you? Follow along. Deuteronomy chapter 30. This is God's word. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, And you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Verse six, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle and the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, And you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them. I declare to you today that you shall perish. 
You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. All right, let's go to the Lord together in prayer before we begin. Father, we praise you for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. We praise you that you are a promise-keeping God. By your Spirit, open your word to us this morning and open us to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, from chapters 29 and 30, we're going to consider three realities together. First, what is humanity's problem? Second, what is God's response or God's solution? And then third, what is our response? So problem, solution, response. First, humanity's problem. Just look down at the Bible in front of you, chapter 29, verses two through four. What's it say? And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Notice first, the beginning of his last sermon, he starts by reminding God's people of what God has done for them, right? What he's delivered them from. So we have to ask why. Why would Moses start his last sermon this way? And really, when you look at it, again, I kind of have to summarize here, but the logic is look at all God has done for you. So therefore, trust and follow him. Keep his commandments. Keep his covenant is what Moses is saying here. Moses goes on in the rest of chapter 29 to call the people of God to keep the covenant, to be aware of and keep away from falling in love with the idols all around them, keep their eyes fixed on their covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Remember all he's done. That's how Moses starts his sermon. But do you see right here at the beginning of 29, do you see the problem? And it's a really, really big kind of problem. It's right there in verse four. Their problem is that the Lord had not given them, quote, a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Picture yourself there, listening to Moses' sermon. When Moses says that, when God says that through his prophet Moses, that's past tense, isn't it? That's God through Moses looking back. God has not to this point given you these things. That's your problem. But then in the flow of these two chapters, right at the beginning of chapter 30, a huge monumental shift happens right at the start of chapter 30. Moses moves from exhorting, like, remember when he delivered you, remember what God's done. He moves to then looking ahead. 
Moses begins prophesying under the inspiration of God. Moses starts to proclaim in his last sermon to the people of God on the eastern banks of the Jordan River, he starts telling them what is going to happen, right? He's spelling it out for them very clearly, very plainly. Moses is looking forward and he's looking so forward that he's looking into the new covenant. That's the dynamics of what's happening here in chapter 30. Just look down. I want to prove to you this is the case. This is actually God's word, not just me saying this. Look down at verse 1, chapter 30. How does it start? And when all these things come upon you, when, when you don't keep the covenant is what he's saying. Not if, but when. Because the end of verse 1 says the Lord has driven them to all the nations, right? Do you remember what the ultimate curse was we saw last week in chapter 28? It was being exiled, right? And he's saying, when this happens, when you're dispersed, when you experience the worst part of the covenant curses of being exiled, and Moses is saying, it's a certainty, you people of God are going to break the covenant you made with God. And he's telling them that before they even set foot into the promised land. Like this is an amazing passage, an amazing scene in the redemptive story arc of the Bible. So again, picture the scene with me. Moses is addressing the people in a really important moment. And what's like the big idea of his sermon? Like how would they experience it? What do you think they're gonna hear? They're gonna hear, you are going to fail in a thus saith the Lord kind of way. Just think about that. Moses' last sermon before he's gonna die, before the people enter the promised land, everything they've been waiting for has been building up to this moment and you are going to fail. Do you think Moses would put that on his resume to become like a motivational speaker, right? He has this key moment. He's like, guess what? And everyone's like, yes, Moses, tell us, like, we're gonna go in there and conquer. We're gonna live the good life, right? Like he goes all Matt Foley on him, motivational speaker. He's like, you are going to fail is what Moses says, right? This hit me this last week. I had to kill some time waiting for Carrie to fly back in from visiting the kids in Arizona. And I went to Barnes and Noble for about an hour and a half. Yes, some of you, there are real, physical, real life places that sell real books, right? And praise God for that. And I was just wandering the store as thinking about this sermon, right? This passage. And it just struck me how many self-help books there are. Like it is one whole huge section in a bookstore is the self-help section. Book after book after book telling you how to be a better you and live a better life, right? Even with glamour shots of the authors that, man, they look like they have it all together. I should listen to them. They make it sound like they have it all together. They figured it out, right? And then these books just keep, keep coming out. Why do they keep coming out? Because we keep buying them, right? Because we are listening to these motivational speakers. How does Moses talk to the people of God here in Deuteronomy in this pivotal moment? Like, I hope you can feel it. it it's actually shocking. It's amazing. The last sermon he gives them, he says it plainly, you are going to fail. 
like mic drop type stuff. And the reason Moses says this is because he's not going all Tony Robbins on them, right? He's not like their motivational speaker guy they prop up to motivate him. He's preaching from God's point of view. He's not tickling their ears. He's saying, you are going to fail, thus saith the Lord. As Moses is looking out at the people right in front of them, right? Based on what he's saying, he's saying, you are going to fail, you people right here. But if you had time to look at all of 29 and 30, it's like he's wrapping them up in a bigger people he's talking to. It's like Israel is representing all of humanity right here. He's saying, you will fail to keep any covenant with God. Anything you're trying to do to obey God, to earn his favor, whatever that is, you are going to fail. In essence, as God's prophet, Moses here is looking out at the human race and saying what our problem is. Because Israel's problem is humanity's problem. And you know what that problem is. It's that we know what we should do, but we just don't do it, right? The people of God knew here as they're ready to enter the promised land. The covenant has been made super plain, super clear. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what you're going to do in response. And if you keep it, here's what's going to happen. If you don't, here's what's going to happen. Like a contract, right? It is very plain. The problem is that, not that they didn't know, it's that they just can't, right? And think about our life today, in your life, maybe with your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, your family members. Most people know what they should do, but they just don't. We should love our neighbor as ourself. I bet most of your non-Christian friends and neighbors would agree with that, right? We should love our neighbor as ourself. How many people do that all the time? Nobody, nobody. So again, I was thinking about this in Barnes and Noble. Most people know how they ought to live. The problem, and that none of that section in Barnes and Noble, none of those self-help books can help with it. The problem is, but we just don't. We know, but we don't, right? Our problem is our wanting and our doing. It's not necessarily our knowing. What comes to mind, maybe some of you are familiar with this. There's this old comedy sketch with Bob Newhart called Stop It. And what happens in this sketch, if you haven't checked it out, check it out later today. Uh, Bob Newhart is this therapist and uh, people come to see him, right? As you go normally to see a therapist. And the, the sketch is for this one woman and she comes in and her, her first problem she shares is, you know, therapist, I just have this deep fear. I am gonna be buried alive. And it just paralyzes my life and this, this, this. And Bob Newhart says, I'm going to give you two words. You can write these down or not to help you, two words. And then he leans across the desk and he yells at her. He goes, stop it. And she's like, oh, he goes, stop it. And then she shares some other problems in her life. And every time he says, stop it. Um, I think it's hilarious. <laughs> Maybe you don't. And that acknowledges the same problem here, right? He even hints at it in, in the sketch. She knows she shouldn't have a fear of being buried alive. He even asks her, has that ever happened to you? Do you know anyone that that's happened? No. Well, then why are you afraid of it? Stop it, is what he's saying. 
The problem is that it's not that we don't know, it's that we just can't not stop it, right? That, that's what's happening here. So our problem is kind of like that skit. We know our problems are real problems and we know how we ought to live. But the issue, the real problem behind and underneath our problems is that we just can't stop it. We just can't do it. That's what Moses is telling the people of God here. You know all this stuff, but guess what? You're going to fail. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, for some of you know who he was, um, had a big impact, especially like 60s, 70s, 80s, right? Uh, Christian man. Um, he shared an illustration. That I don't remember where I heard this, but it's just stuck with me over the years. I wanted to relay it to you because it's kind of capturing what we're talking about here. I don't want this to just sound kind of like um, in theory. Here's what Schaefer shared, and I think you'll appreciate this. Imagine with me some think tank events, this small little recording device that you have with you at every moment for your whole life. And what this recording device does, it records every time you express, you say, or you think your own moral standards. So every time you say someone ought to do fill in the blank or someone shouldn't do fill in the blank, boom, the recorder records that every single time, every ought to, every not ought to. And then at the end of your life, you're going to fail God's standards. Let's say God's like, you know, I'm going to be even extra kind first. Let's see if you pass your own standards. And God replays that little recording device you've had with you throughout your whole life. Do you think you are going to pass the test of meeting your own moral standards? If we're being honest, each and every one of us would fail that test miserably. I do every week. So-and-so ought to, so-and-so not ought to. And I fail in those same ways too. That's what Moses is pointing out to. The real problem is not just the doing, it's that people, humanity's problem is we don't even meet our own moral standards. So what's our hope? What are we supposed to do with that? That moves us to our second point today, our second reality, God's solution. The whole core, like fuel, engine room of this passage of chapter 29 and 30 is verse 6 of chapter 30. God has a plan to fix their deepest problem and by implication, our deepest problem. Just look down at verse 6 with me. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. I hope that sounds familiar to you and maybe even a little jarring. Do you remember back in chapter 10, verse 16, the people were told they needed to circumcise their own hearts. But then fast forward to here in the last sermon towards the end of Deuteronomy, Moses sees into the future and he sees they're going to fail. They can't circumcise their own hearts. That becomes crystal clear. Not only is circumcising your own heart impossible, like can you perform open heart surgery on yourself? 
So that's what we talked about back in chapter 10. You can't. Not only is performing open heart surgery on yourself impossible, it's also like really gross, really painful, really messy, right? That is not viable. That can't happen. So it only makes it more clear. God needed to be the one to circumcise their hearts for them. And then what's amazing is verse six is picked up and carried through the rest of the whole Bible. This is an amazing passage. A few quick examples. Later in Jeremiah chapter 24, verse seven, God says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. Who's doing that work there? God says he will give them a heart. Our call to worship, worship passage today was from Ezekiel chapter 36. And there God says, I will give you a new heart and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you. Do you hear Deuteronomy 36 and then how that is amplified and played out in scripture? And then especially in Jeremiah chapter 31, God says he will make a new covenant because God always keeps his promises. God is saying that if the covenant is going to happen, if it's actually going to work, it can't be dependent on you or because you're going to fail. God has to do the deep work to write his law on our hearts, no longer on stone tablets, but on our hearts. Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34 describe it like this. Just listen. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So here back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses is preaching a sermon to the near horizon in front of him, to the people about ready to enter the promised land. And he's also preaching a sermon way out in the further horizon into the new covenant. Like Moses is preaching to you from this text that God has to be the one to do the work to change you, to circumcise your heart, to do that deep work that you can't do for yourself. So in order to get this, right, so that Deuteronomy 36 just doesn't like become like kind of like religious language or Christianese, I want to give us just space just briefly here to consider from the Bible's perspective, from God's viewpoint, what is a circumcised heart? And maybe some of you know this already, but we have to break that into two things first. First, we have to know what does the Bible mean when it talks about our hearts. And, and much could be said, but I, I trust you'd agree with me. When we're reading our Bibles right here in Deuteronomy 30, you know, verse six, 
when the Bible mentions our heart, it's not talking about like the four chambered physical piece of flesh that's pounding in your chest right now, right? We, we know this, but what is it? And really at its core, if you spent time to look at it, when the Bible talks about our hearts, it's talking about what is at the center of our lives. What's the control center of your being of who you are? It's like the throne room of your whole life. The heart, when the Bible talks about it, has to do with what we love. So real quick, just to like prove this to you. In Matthew chapter six, where Jesus says that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Why did Jesus say that? (laughs) Have you ever thought much about that? The reason Jesus puts it that way is because the heart is the place where you decide what you treasure, right? What you love, the control center of your being, the throne room of your life. Your heart is where you decide and you cultivate what you value as ultimately good and ultimately hopeful. Or some verses, probably a lot of us in this room memorized. Young people, I hope you've memorized these verses. Proverbs chapter three, five and six. You can probably repeat them to yourself right now, right? What's it say? To trust the Lord with all your heart. Why? Why does it say to trust the Lord with all your heart? Because that's what a heart does. That's a heart's job description. It trusts. It trusts in something. So this means that what powers the control center of your heart, what's at the center of your life, what sits on the throne of your heart will impact your mind, your will, and your emotions. That's just how it works. That's just how we're designed. It's been said, listen to this quote, what the heart most wants, the mind finds reasonable, the emotions find desirable, and the will finds doable. Do you agree with me on that? That's how our heart works in our life. Okay, so just briefly, that's a heart from a Christian biblical place, right? Then let's dive in a little bit further. What is a circumcised heart? If God has to give you a circumcised heart, we should know what it is. What does that mean? And lots could be said, but in essence, it means God is doing surgery on your heart. You're not prying open your own chest cavity and doing open heart surgery on yourself to change what you love. God has to be the one to do that. And just look down again at verse six. You'll see that this dynamic, it's right here on the pages of scripture. Just notice verse six gives us a purpose about why God circumcises a heart. Notice two key words in verse six. So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. God circumcises a heart for a reason, so that we can love God. So what does that mean? It means that having a circumcised heart means that what you want to do and what you should do become the same thing. They're in alignment with one another. If you have a circumcised heart, like it's your ought to and your want to are one and the same thing. There are few degrees of difference 
between those two things. John Newton, our brother who will meet someday on the new heavens and new earth, who wrote Amazing Grace. Probably a lot of you like know his testimony. He used to be a captain on a slave ship. And then he got saved. God circumcised his heart. God graciously made him a pastor and he wrote many hymns that still bless us today. Listen to how Newton kind of speaks to this circumcised heart and when you want to and you ought to become one and the same thing. Newton wrote it beautifully. He said, Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined apart no more. Joined apart no more. That's the essence of what a circumcised heart is. Moses tells the people of God as they're ready to enter the promised land, you know what you should do to keep the covenant. Newsflash, you are going to fail because God hadn't circumcised their heart. Earlier today, uh, when we were praying before, Todd said it in the class earlier today, praise God we are in the new covenant (laughs) and that God can circumcise our hearts. So where do we go with this? What do we do with this? That brings us to our third and final emphasis, our response. How are we to respond to the reality that we will fail to trust and follow God unless he circumcises our heart? And the reason why I'm saying the third part in this sermon can be from Moses' sermon because that's what Moses does. (laughs) He calls for a response. Just look down briefly uh, at verse 11. He says that this commandment is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. And then just let your finger go down the page just a little bit more. Notice verses 15 through 20. He says that they have set before them life and death, basically death and evil. And so what are you going to do with that? That's where verse 19, look down at verse 19 towards the end of Moses' last sermon, he says, therefore, choose life that you may live. So remember at the start of 30, Moses starts to prophesy and he's looking ahead. Well, now towards the end of chapter 30, towards the end of his sermon, it's like he's kind of coming back into the present again, speaking to God's people on the banks of the Jordan River. And he's saying that what God has been commanding is not too difficult for them. That feels like a contradiction in some ways, doesn't it? Because he's told them they're going to fail, and now he's saying it's not too difficult for you. So what it means is that God has graciously made it plain to them. Here's the covenant. Here's what I'm agreeing to do for you. Here's what you are agreeing to do for me. Here's the blessings and the curses. It's all laid out is what Moses is saying. It's right there for them. But in another way, it is too difficult for them because Moses is saying they're going to fail. So again, there's a further horizon to what Moses is saying here in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And just like he calls for a response, we should respond to this too. Although our response, again, praise God, is much different because our response is run through the cross of Jesus Christ. And the reason I can say that is that's because how the Bible understands itself. Paul in Romans chapter 10, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he takes Deuteronomy 30 
and he applies it on this side of the cross. He interprets it and applies it to new covenant believers, just like you and me. Listen to how Deuteronomy 30 is used in Romans chapter 10, verses eight through 11. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Do you see it? He quoted Moses' last sermon in Romans chapter 10. So what is our response? How do we choose life on this side of the cross? By confessing and believing in Jesus Christ, the word that came near and the only word that will never crush you. So again, just remember back in Deuteronomy, Moses tells them they are going to fail. But here in Romans, we see this word, the person and work of Jesus Christ, through the all-sufficient lens of what Jesus has done, he calls us to confess and believe in who Jesus is and what he's done. That word is not far off. By faith, we can apprehend that and we can live into that because God circumcises our hearts, because God takes our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh to love him. And just think about where Deuteronomy 30 is pointing us. Because at the cross, Jesus Christ experienced the full fury of all the covenant curses. He was cut off, wasn't he? Why? So that we could be brought in and experience the ultimate blessings of the new covenant, of knowing and being known by the God of perfect love. That's how good and kind and gracious and sovereign and promise-keeping our God is. So this means, like as we're moving towards the end of Deuteronomy, moving towards the end of this sermon right now, that this means that this tension that's been building up in Deuteronomy that maybe you've been feeling, that's going to continue as you keep reading the Old Testament until you come to the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The tension of, is God good? Yes, he's good because he punishes sin. And he's good because he forgives us at great cost to himself. There is no contradiction in who God is, even though it feels that way sometimes in Deuteronomy. God is completely and fully and gloriously good in all that he is. He punishes sin because he's holy and he's just. And that punishment fell on his son in our place because he's that good to save us. So what does it take to give us new hearts to love God? Galatians 3 again. I'm just doing like a quick study on this. It takes up this same idea, same logic from Deuteronomy. Galatians 3 verses 13 and 14 says that it took Jesus Christ becoming a curse for us so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Isn't that beautiful? Think of all the blessings and curses in Deuteronomy. The curses fell on Christ so you can get all the blessings. It's, it's amazing. 
and, and maybe for some of you, like you can agree and nod your head intellectually, doctrinally, that's objectively true. But maybe your heart has started to become lukewarm or hard because you haven't been applying that truth to the center of what you love. That you will fail to trust and love God as you ought to unless God has changed your heart. And he did that by sending his son to die on a cross and experience all those blessings or all those curses so that you get the blessings. If your heart feels lukewarm or tepid or apathetic towards God, I would encourage you to reflect on all that God has done to save you and let that start to like warm your heart afresh to see God as good and glorious and as loving as he is. Here in a few minutes, our benediction will be from Hebrews chapter 13. And it says that Jesus, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equips us with everything good that you may do his will and that to Jesus Christ be glory forever and ever and ever. Praise God, we live in the new covenant. And here in a few minutes, we partake of the Lord's table. This is a new covenant in his blood. That's what it took for Jesus to do his work for you and for you to get a new heart. It should not be taken lightly. It should not be assumed. The only solution for our heart problem is the perfect person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you're, you're here today, we say this every week at GBC because we mean it. If, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, or I'd even throw this out to you, maybe you've like said you believe in Jesus, but maybe lately you're wondering if you really do, okay? If that's you, I want you to consider what you've heard today. I'd ask you to consider what your moral standards are and how are you doing at living up to those? And intuitively, subconsciously, if you keep moving the goalposts on your own moral standards, it's because you know you even can't eat, meet your own moral standards. Doesn't that show like graciously God is showing you there's a problem inside of you, the problem with your heart. And then compare that to what Jesus Christ offers you, his perfect righteousness, his blessings forever and ever and ever of joy everlasting. He offers you a new heart to really love God and to really love others imperfectly this side of heaven. But that's what the offer he extends to you. Again, an offer that was purchased by his blood. If you are not a Christian, I would ask you, I would implore you to make that decision today, to choose life today by confessing and repenting and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Romans 10, 11 says, so that you won't be put to shame. If you're tired of living in your shame, it's a sign you need a new heart and only God can give that to you through Jesus. For those of us that are here that are Christians, that's most of us, in light of our text today, let me encourage us also to confess and repent, to be refreshed again and again with the wonder and the vastness and the beauty and the glory and the depth and the all-sufficiency and the eternality of the gospel. The vastness and love of God's plan of salvation is astounding. 
It's amazing. Deuteronomy 29 and 30 are historically true. They really happened. And now on this side of the cross and the new covenant, God's still keeping his promises. Like if, you, if you're starting to um, be okay with sin in your life, or you're starting to really struggle with a particular area of sin, I would ask you to think about how vast and beautiful and deep God's love is in the gospel. And let that reorient you that you can trust God. God's purposes don't only center on you. (laughs) Praise God for his personal love for us, but it is so vast. It's the greatest story ever told and it's all true. Like that has to do something to you. I would ask you, Christian, if you are struggling to live as you ought, to love God and others as you ought, warm yourself again by the fire of the gospel. It's amazing. God circumcises your heart so that you can love him and love other people. And our text also proves today, it's easy for us to say on this side of the cross, we can open our Bibles and be like, yeah, look at Deuteronomy 30 and look at Romans 10. God keeps his promises. Every single promise that God makes, he will keep. It's not our timing that determines if that's true or not. It's God's timing. So let me encourage you to trust God. Trust him with your doubts, with your temptations to deconstruct, with your secret places of sin. Trust him. He keeps his promises. He is so good to keep his promises. So choose life by entrusting yourself to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ and choose life. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We stand in awe of who you are, that you are a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, that we are a covenant-breaking kind of people. And yet, you fulfill your promises. You always keep your word. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so we praise you for that. We give you glory for that. Father, whoever is here today and needed to be refreshed with your great love, I pray that you will do that work through your spirit. Comfort those who are afflicted. And if there's any here today who are too comfortable in themselves, I pray that you will graciously afflict them with what your word says of your holiness and your justice and your all-sufficient love. Please renew our hearts May we be a people who trust and follow you and who choose life by believing in Jesus Christ. And we ask all of this in his name. Amen.